Good morning, Crossroads. Those watching at home, glad you're with us. I came across a recent study conducted by, of all people, an organization called Canine Cottages. Canine Cottages. They track dogs and their behavior. And this particular survey, the way they conducted it is they attached heart monitors to the dogs, special heart monitors that would track their level of excitement based on their interaction with their owners. They wanted to see what things made the dogs most excited, getting their little tails wagging the fastest. And do you know what the survey determined? The survey determined that the thing that made the dog most excited, their heart rate went up by 46% in this survey that they conducted, in interaction with their owner was hearing the words, I love you. You see, love is a powerful thing, is it not? Now, we aren't canines, but we understand the idea of receiving a message of love. And God, being the author and the inventor and the creator and all that love is defined by, he understands the power of a good love story. Now, if you went to my house right now, you would see on our DVR... A bunch of movies that are really cheesy, but they're like Hallmark, or I think there's a new, new channel called G Family. I don't even know what G Family stands for, but there's a bunch of recorded shows that are Christmas love stories. Why are they on my DVR? I don't know. I didn't record them. My lovely wife here loves to watch those. She just curls up with a good cup of hot chocolate, right? And uh, she's not curling up next to me, I don't know why, but she's, she's curling up with a nice cup of hot chocolate, and she's watching a good love story at Christmas time. Amen? We've already looked at a few things in our Christmas time together. We've looked at the story of Christmas from a few different angles. A few weeks ago, Pastor Jeff led us through the shepherd's joy. Do you remember the joy the shepherds encountered? when they heard that their Messiah, a child, was born in Bethlehem, and they had the opportunity to hear about it from a host of heavenly angels. Can you imagine to be the first to hear that the, the Messiah was born and to go get to check it out your, for yourself? What joy came over the shepherds? And last week, Pastor Kurt led us in a message looking at the story from Mary's perspective. And Mary's perspective was one of, of sensing, even though her world was about to be shattered in terms of what would normally be the experience of a woman who was engaged to be married, she was going to experience the peace of having the Messiah come through her. What a gift that was. She was specially chosen by the Lord. And we saw that the, the unique characteristic of God's peace which despite any circumstances we face, can bring us a peace that surpasses all understanding. And it guards our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus. And so Mary experienced that peace through her journey. This morning we're going to look at the story from another angle. We're going to look at it from, this, from the vantage point of Joseph. Joseph 
was engaged, was, was betrothed to Mary at this time. And so I want you to join me. We're going to look at uh, the story in a few of the Gospels as we walk through the love of a father, the love of Joseph. Join me in Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to begin at verse 18. Matthew 1, 18 says this, The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. It goes on to say in the next verse that, so her husband Joseph being a righteous man. What is this, what's happened here? Well, anybody who's been in the process of dating someone and finding out that like, yeah, that's the one I want to choose, I'm going to propose. This is the experience Joseph went through. He, he met Mary, he clearly fell for Mary, and so he decided through his Jewish tradition that he would propose to her. And the proposal in that day was to literally write up a contract, seek out her father to determine what was the bride's price going to be, how, how rich was it to, to become her husband, what did he have to pay. He also wrote up a contract that said, here's what I can provide for her. Here's my estate, here's what I can offer her. And then he would eventually meet with Mary, and he would offer her a cup of wine along with that contract. And if she was going to say yes to the proposal, she would drink from that glass of wine. And that was a signal to everyone who witnessed it that she said yes to the marriage proposal. And so Mary had clearly gone through that process. Joseph had asked her, proposed to her, and guess what? She drank from the cup of wine after she examined all that he could provide her. She was satisfied. She, she wanted to be married to Joseph. So Joseph, you can imagine, was so excited. His role was to then go back and prepare a place for her. To go back to his father's house and to begin to construct a room in which they would begin their life as a married couple. And there was a period of time only the father of Joseph would know when that was done. And he would say, okay, go, get your bride. And usually it would happen at night, it would happen at midnight, and there'd be a great celebration, and the bridal party would show up, and with a great shout, they would wake up the bride and her bridesmaids, and they would journey off to be married. What a beautiful ceremony that would take place. So Joseph is off preparing a place for his bride, Mary, when he hears, when he discovers that something seems to be amiss, something seems to be off. Mary is pregnant. Can you imagine how disappointing and disheartening that might have felt as a man? Because at this point, Joseph doesn't know that something supernatural has taken place. He has no idea. Usually, if a woman ends up pregnant, something bad has taken place. Right? There's been cheating that's involved. There's been another man that has entered the equation. And so Joseph is devastated at this moment. And Joseph begins to, to think and weigh his options. What am I to do? Certainly, I can't move forward with this. She, she clearly doesn't love me. She's chosen someone else. But the Bible tells us that he's a righteous man. 
What does that term mean, righteous? It means someone who always wants to choose what is right. Now, this is not what is right in the, in the world's eyes, nor in his own eyes. This is seeking to determine what is right in God's eyes. And so how does he do that? Well, he searches the scriptures, of course. He searches God's word to determine what it is that he should do that would be right, that would be just, that would be fair, that would be the right thing to do according to God. And he has, believe it or not, two options. God gives options in this situation, and they're found in Deuteronomy. I want to explore this real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 22. It says that if a man find, you know, is engaged or he finds and he's, he's coming to be married to a woman and he finds that there's something not right, that it seems like she is not the virgin that she claims to be. She's been with someone else. That he has every right to bring that case before the, the town elders, before the city officials of that wherever they lived. And in this case, it was in Nazareth. He could bring it to the attention of the public officials, and he could basically get them to launch an inquiry. And they could then gather evidence, almost like a trial, and they could determine whether or not she was guilty of cheating on her soon-to-be husband. Deuteronomy 22, verse 20 says, but if this accusation, the accusation made by the husband, is true, and no evidence of the young woman's virginity is found, they will bring the woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of the city will stone her to death. This was a serious offense. This was not to be taken lightly. For she has committed an outrage in Israel by being promiscuous in her father's house. You must purge this evil from you. God takes the covenant of marriage seriously. Does he not? The Bible says he hates divorce. The Bible says that what God has brought together, let no man break apart. This is what God thinks of when he thinks of marriage. Has our world honored that? Or has our world made a mockery of it? But what does God think? What does God view this as? Well, it's so serious that he believes that it deserves death if you violate the terms of God's sacred covenant. That was one option that Joseph could have explored. He could have explored the idea of, I'm going to bring this to trial. This is going to become a public affair. She's disgraced me. Because here's the thing. People knew that Joseph had proposed. Now he's being embarrassed. He's being disgraced publicly. He has every right to bring that to the public and to have that determination made that she's a cheater and she deserves to be punished. But God puts in the law a second option. Deuteronomy chapter 24, starting at verse 1. If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something improper about her, he may write her a divorce certificate hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Now, this second option didn't need to be public, necessarily. He didn't, he didn't like, get the attention of the, the town elders. He didn't, like, make a big public trial out of the whole thing. No, this was a private notice that was given. You've clearly disgraced me. 
but rather than bring you up to a public trial, I'm simply going to hand you a letter of divorce and I'm going to send you away. I'm going to send you away, but in, in doing so, understand that you're getting grace because you're not getting all that the law demands that you should receive. What should you receive? You should receive death. But instead, I'm going to allow you to live because I love you. But man, you've really hurt me and you've disgraced me by cheating on me. Verse 19 of Matthew chapter 1, so, so her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, remember what I said, it, it's seeking out what does God think is the right thing to do in this situation. And not wanting to disgrace her publicly. What a gracious man Joseph is. He loves Mary. Yeah, he's heartbroken. Yeah, he's feeling like betrayed. But he doesn't want to give it back to her. He wants to simply follow God's instructions, but do it in a way that loves her to the highest level that he possibly can. So he, not wanting to disgrace her public, decided to divorce her secretly. There's Deuteronomy chapter 24. He's going to issue her that private letter of divorce and send her away. Brokenhearted, I'm sure. His dream was Mary. He had spent time courting her. He had put up a great price to win her, to buy her from her father's estate. In that day, women weren't able to really make a living, and so a woman was considered a liability in the household, right? The father had to care for her and bring her up. Those of us who have daughters, we understand that concept. Just kidding. Just kidding. But there is a sense, though, that men could go out and earn a living and, and bring in a bunch of money. And so those that raised a daughter, a beautiful daughter, would, would ask, hey, we need a little bit of money for all the expense that it's taken to raise this young lady and, and bring her to a place where she's ready to be married. And so that was a common thing in that day. There was a bride's price. Now, if you raise a daughter, you've got to pay for the wedding. Something messed up around here. No. We do, that with, we do that with a sense of joy, those of us who are dads, right? Um, but in this day, that's the way it went down. So in verse 20, but after he had considered these things, what did he had considered? He had considered, like, what do I do that's the right thing to do? And I don't want to disgrace her. I don't want her to die I don't know why she's cheated on me. I don't know why she's decided to disgrace me, but you know what? I want to give her grace, and so I want to do it privately. After he'd weighed all these things, and it's interesting that God allowed him to go through that process. Does God always give us the answers right away? No, sometimes he makes us sweat. He makes us wrestle with things and decisions. Why? Because he wants to test. Do we want to seek what is right and what is good? Are we going to figure things out on our, our way, in our terms? Joseph passed the test, does he not? He seeks out God's way, and he wants to do it with grace. But after he considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. And you are to name him Jesus, 
because he will save his people from their sins. What a beautiful dream that must have been. Usually I dream about like guys with three arms and like some sort of like crazy. I don't have these kinds of dreams, right? God, God purposely gave Joseph this beautiful dream. And it was from an angel delivering a message to Joseph. They say, Joseph, I know you think one way, but that's not the case in this situation. This is a beautiful thing that I'm doing, that I'm working. I'm bringing about my promise of the Messiah. This was all to fulfill, look at verse 22. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Now Joseph knew this verse. This was in the Old Testament. See, the virgin will become pregnant. Yeah, the virgin will become pregnant. That's what happened to Mary. And give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. He's going to have a name that, that symbolizes that God is with us. God is for us. You're telling me, God, that this is happening in my family, in my situation? I can't believe it. What an honor. Wow. I'm not worthy. This was similar to what Mary's reaction was. Was it not? She rejoiced. She had a song of just praise for God's favor that was resting on her. Verse 24, when Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Jesus means Yeshua, which is God's salvation. God's salvation. God is with us, Emmanuel. God is going to save us through Yeshua. What a beautiful thing. A beautiful privilege. A beautiful story. And Joseph displays a beautiful love. A love that is soaked in grace, rooted in righteousness, and displayed through obedience to God. That's what love should look like. That's what Joseph's love looked like. It was soaked in grace. He gave Mary what she did not deserve. He gave her grace. He gave her not death, but life. She could pursue whatever she wanted because he was going to issue her a letter of divorce privately, quietly, secretly. That was an act of grace. It was rooted in righteousness. Did he not seek out what was right in the eyes of God? That's what love does. And it, it was displayed through obedience to God. Love is willing to listen to God, obey God, and choose what God has to say. Luke chapter 2, we're going to pick up the story in another gospel. Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration, or census, took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. As I did research this week, I realized that there's a controversy here, so I just want to bring it up real quick. The controversy is they're not sure who was the governor 
of Syria during the time of about 5 BC, when Herod was still alive and when Jesus was likely born in Bethlehem. What they do know is the records indicate that Quirinius was governor in 6 to 7 AD. Well, that can be a problem, right? That's like 12 years after Jesus was born. Now, it's possible that Quirinius was also governor during this time when they're not sure who the governor was, and that the Bible, therefore, is accurate. Because even though history doesn't record him as being governor, Luke found it out and put it in the Bible. But it's also possible that this verse is translated incorrectly. The word first here can also mean before. So the, the, the verse could literally read, this was the census that took place before Quirinius was governor of Syria. Either way, we know that the Bible is true, is accurate, but we don't have all the information from history to figure all that out. But I wanted to bring that up because there's always skeptics that say and challenge the word of God, do they not? Say this story isn't accurate. Look, history says that Quirinius was governor in 6 and 7 A.D., well, guess what? The word first can also be translated before. So it fits. But also, maybe Quirinius was governor. History doesn't tell us who was governor during that period of time when Jesus was born. So we trust the word of God, do we not? Well, we do know Caesar Augustus, by history, was the Caesar in Rome. The Bible is consistent there. Verse 3, so everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. Now, I, I looked up the journey from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. Anybody curious how many miles that is? It's 90 miles. Okay, so this is no little easy stroll. I've gone on walks with my wife, and sometimes she wants to go like over a mile, and I'm like, what are you thinking? <laughs> let's go around the block once, maybe twice, and let's go back and sit in our couch. Right? This is a 90-mile journey with a woman who is nine months pregnant. This journey usually took people about four or five days because people could travel 20 miles in a given day. They were in shape compared to us, right? I can barely travel 20 miles in my car without getting exhausted. But back then, it was, it was considered commonplace, but these, these trails would be difficult to travel at times. There were, there were dangers, there were obstacles that you had to pass over. 90-mile journey... Talk about inconvenient. Why couldn't a God got him to Bethlehem like while she was still, you know, like three or four months pregnant? No. God was moving and working. Why? Because he needed to have the Messiah be born where? In Bethlehem, not in Nazareth. That didn't fit the prophecy. So God, in his sovereignty, decides that the thing that's going to move them is going to move them in the ninth month of her pregnancy. Now, I imagine this could have took them up to a week because they likely traveled slower. And the discomfort, I, I've never been nine months pregnant, but women, 
I've seen, watched my, my wife in a nice bed just feel uncomfortable the entire time during that time. So imagine on a donkey or by foot walking 90 miles. I can't imagine. How inconvenient. Verse 6, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him snugly in cloth and laid him in a feeding trough because there was no room for them at the lodging place. I think about Joseph during this whole story. He's trying to love Mary. He's trying to take care of her. But they arrive in Bethlehem and it's too crowded. They can't find any room in a place to stay. And so the only thing that is left is a kind of like a cave, if you will. A place where the sheep and the cattle and the different animals would go in to shelter from weather or animals that would come and try and stalk them at night. And I think about the sacrifice that it took on the part of Joseph to care for her, to love her, to try and find some place for them, for her to have rest. It wasn't convenient, was it? It was very, it involves sacrifice. And that's the point, too, that I want to raise about love. Love expects inconvenience. Love is many times inconvenienced. It embraces sacrifice, and it elevates serving the needs of others. I imagine that whole journey, Joseph's like, man, I just want to get, get there. I mean, I know the inns are filling up right now because we're, we're late. We're going to be the last ones to Bethlehem. Come on, Mary, get a move on. But that's not the way he was treating her, was it? He was being gentle. He was being kind. He was being sacrificial about his own needs to care for the needs of her and the child that was soon to come. Love expects inconvenience, it embraces sacrifice, and it always elevates the needs of others over itself. Matthew chapter 2, continuing in verse 13, after they were gone, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream. Now who were gone? The wise men had come and visited. The wise men had come to see and offer their gifts to the newborn king. And do you remember who they had gone to first to to try and figure out where the star was leading them? Yeah, they had gone to Herod. And he had given them a message, had he not? He said, yeah, go find this child, this king that is to be born. And then come back and tell me where he is so that I too may come and worship him. Did Herod have any intent to worship this child? Certainly not. His intent was to destroy this child because it threatened his power and his throne. There was only one king in that region. It was going to be him. So after the wise men left, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. How inconvenient is this? Anybody ever traveled with a newborn? You got to have the diaper bag, you got to have the stroller, the car seat. 
Now, the donkey seat, I don't know if it existed, right? But imagine how inconvenient it is to leave this place where they've settled. By then, the wise men, the Bible tells us, showed up not at the feeding trough, by the way. It says that they showed up at the house. So by then, they had moved out of the little cave, right? We see at the nativity sets, where do we see the wise men show up? At the manger. That's not biblical, right? That's not what the Bible records. The Bible says the wise men visited sometime later while they were in a house in Bethlehem. And so they had settled in. Maybe it was some family members of Joseph. Remember, he had family in Bethlehem, right? His, his, he had descended from the house of the tribe of David, which was from Bethlehem. Jesse was from, Jesse, David's father, was from Bethlehem, the Bible tells us. Ephrath. And so there was probably family that they got to finally figure out where they were at and stay with them, invited them in, took them in, and now it was comfortable. And guess what? God says, don't get comfortable. It's time to move. And they had to flee all the way to Egypt. Now, I looked up from Bethlehem to Egypt. Guess how many miles? 180. Twice the distance from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Talk about inconvenient. Now we're talking about a two-week journey with a child. And it has to happen in the middle of the night, immediately. But Joseph loves her, and Joseph loves his child, and Joseph does what is necessary. He obeys God, and he got up and took the child and his mother during the night, and they escaped to Egypt. Matthew chapter 2, verse 19, after Herod died, some time passes, Herod had gone into Bethlehem. Do you remember the story? With the soldiers, with the army, and he had killed every child under the age of two. What a wicked dude. Just murdered and slaughtered them because the wise men had also had a vision. Don't go back and talk to Herod. Get out of here. So Herod, knowing that, where'd those wise men go? Where were they headed? Bethlehem. Let's go kill every child. Since I don't know the specific child, they never told me, I'm going to kill them all just to be safe from any threat to his power. But after Herod dies, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who sought the child's life are dead so he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he will be called a Nazarene. Now, you needed to understand something, that Nazareth was an outpost of the Roman Empire. And so many of the Jews that lived there had, were sold out to the Romans because the Rome had a big influence in Nazareth. And so, therefore, in the Jewish communities, they looked at people who lived in Nazareth as detestable, slime balls and scum. Nothing good came from Nazareth. Because those who lived there were sold out for the Romans and were not good Jews. It's like living in Rolinda today. Maybe not. If you're from Rolinda, God bless you. I was raised close to there, so 
Nothing good comes from there, right? Um, That's not true. But what is true is that in this day, Nazareth was considered a detestable place. And yet, God leads them right back to this place. And that's where Jesus was raised. From some time around when he was a toddler all the way until he became a man. Now, don't miss it here because we see point number three about love. Love responds to God's revelation and rests in his plans. Do you see what Joseph does when he is given revelation from God? He does what is loving. He immediately obeys and responds. Does he not? Does he question? Does he go, but I hear that you want me to do this, God, but I'd rather do this. Or so many other people are doing this, God, why are you asking me to do this? Is that what Joseph's doing? No. When God speaks, he obeys and listens. And that's what love looks like. Do you realize that? Love means responding to God's revelation and resting yourself. In other words, placing yourself in in resting in God's plan. You may not understand God's plan. You may not always agree with God's plan. But when we choose to love God in response to his revelation, we rest in his plan. That's what Joseph does. As an earthly father, Joseph provided a picture of the heavenly father's perfect love. This love was revealed through his son Jesus to the entire world. Joseph displays a love, but Jesus displays an even more beautiful love. Listen to this. Jesus displays a love that was soaked in grace, that was rooted in righteousness, and that was carried out in obedience to God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. But to the Son, your throne God is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy. Jesus' love was rooted in doing what was right, what God the Father wanted him to do. He was willing to do. Jesus' love was carried out in obedience. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Jesus Christ, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself. By assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men, and when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus not only displayed a love rooted in righteousness, but he displayed a love that was committed to obedience. Jesus was the creator of the universe. That's what the Bible tells us. But yet, in humility, he borrowed a womb at his conception. He borrowed a manger at his birth. He borrowed a donkey to ride on on Palm Sunday. He borrowed a room for the last night that he was to be with his disciples. And he borrowed another man's tomb in which his broken body would be laid. The God who owned all the universe borrowed everything in this life. He didn't own a thing. Not only was Christ's love toward mankind rooted in righteousness and carried out in obedience, 
but it was most definitely soaked in grace. Soaked in unmerited favor, undeserved love. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says this, But God proves his own love for us. In this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's speaking to all of us. Paul is when he writes this letter to the church. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. We were all helpless. We were all hurting. We did nothing to deserve God's love. And yet, verse 4, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with the Messiah. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. God's grace is unmerited. It's undeserved. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. And yet he loves us so richly that he sent a son to pay the price that we couldn't for our sin. Jesus displays a love that expects inconvenience, embraces sacrifice, and elevates serving the needs of others. Luke 9, 58, Jesus told them, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus' love for us involved inconvenience. He who became, he who was rich became poor. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus' love not only involved inconvenience, it involved great sacrifice. Listen to John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 15, 13, no one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus most definitely modeled sacrifice. He laid down his life for each of us. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus has displayed a love that was soaked in grace, rooted in righteousness, that was inconvenient, that was sacrificial. And his call is for us to respond. His call is for us to respond to such a great love by loving him in return. Jesus calls us to love by responding to God's revelation and resting in his plan. What is Christmas all about? It's about Jesus coming into our world. It's about Jesus loving the world so much that he gave himself for our sins. How do we respond to this great revelation, to this great love? It's recorded in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. We have to turn away from trying to do life on our terms, from trying to seek solutions ourselves, and we need to turn to God. That's what repentance means, is to turn away from selfishness and to turn back to accepting what God's plan is. And God's plan is centered on Jesus Christ. 
Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart and it results in righteousness. One confesses with the mouth and it results in salvation. Now the scriptures say, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between a Jew and a Greek, since the same Lord of all is rich to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the promise of God this morning. How do you respond to his great revelation that's centered in Christ that this season celebrates? You give him your heart. You confess with your mouth that, God, you get to call the shots. Jesus, you are Lord. John chapter 13, verse 34 says, A new command I give you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you must also love one another. The wise men brought gifts on Christmas. And as I wrap up, I'm going to invite the worship team to come. We're going to have a chance to respond this morning, to worship, to respond to the revelation of Jesus coming into our world. But the wise men brought gifts to God. Do you remember what they were? Gifts to the Savior, Jesus? They were gold, they were frankincense, and they were myrrh. This morning, if you want to be a wise person, you should bring Jesus a gift. But Jesus isn't looking for gold from you. He's not looking for frankincense, and he certainly doesn't want myrrh. What does Jesus want? He wants you to bring to him your heart. Just as it is, with all of its messed up situation, all of the sin, all of the disobedience to God, all the breaking of his law, he wants you to lay it down at the foot of his cross. And he wants you to just admit you need him. You need what he brings, and that's love, and that's forgiveness, and that's salvation. Bring him your love. Bring him your obedience this morning. Maybe you're like, well, I've done that. I've given him my heart. Good. You're ready to celebrate. Go further. Point others to Jesus in your life. That's what he left us to do in this life, is to take the great gift of Christmas and share it with others. We still have an opportunity to do that. There's a week left before Christmas this year. Have you invited someone to come and hear the good news of Christmas? Have you shared the hope of Jesus with someone this season? Have you given out one of those invite cards that are in the back? I encourage you to do that. Pastor Kurt's going to have one more week of sharing this good news next Sunday morning as we celebrate Christmas Day. Will you bring him your heart, your love, and your obedience? Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, thank you for Christmas. And thank you for Joseph, the story of a man who loved. He loved deeply, he loved richly, God, because he was a man after your heart. Because, God, you had modeled love for him, and he had embraced that for himself. He was able to love others. He was able to love Mary. He was able to love his child, who was 
the Messiah. What a beautiful thing, God. But bigger than Joseph's story of love is the Father's love for us displayed through the Son, Jesus Christ. God, help us to embrace that love, to respond to that love in this season. And help us to give you genuine praise from our hearts for all that you've done. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.